You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So be Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll read, you just follow along, and then we'll pray, and we're going to dive right in. Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. You catch the hint of thus saith the Lord. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver, and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings. You see how we could have gone into a giving series. <laughs> besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. Notice that's the second time we've read that phrase, that God stirred up spirits of people. He continues, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Now, just note, Nebuchadnezzar, roughly 70 years prior had taken all of the vessels, all the holy vessels, out of the house of God and placed them in the house of his own gods. And God, in my vision, just sat back and went, oh, you think so, do you? <laughs> uh, you, you took my special stuff. You're, you're really wise. And we'll just wait this out and see what happens. And so what does God do? doesn't doesn't do what a lot of us think he might do, like go blow up Nebuchadnezzar's palace, although I think there's probably some of that in the storyline. But 70 years later, God moves through a pagan king named Cyrus to get those things out and to return them to where they belong. Like that whole storyline, I could preach that all day long. Verse 8. <clears throat> Cyrus, king of Persia, <clears throat> brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, I don't know why they named their kids this. Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar. I don't even know what's, I mean, how do you call that kid? Hey, Sheesh, get over here. Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. <clears throat> and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 400 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels, 
All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. I'll pause right there because I don't make a comment about this. I don't have a comment about this later. If you do the math there, it's not 5,400. So just for those of you who pay really close attention and like to find things in the Bible that don't add up and like, oh, the Bible doesn't mean what it says it means, it actually does. Um, this 5,400 number, most scholars, commentators would just say that's the number of uh, all of the things, while what's actually listed here is not all of the things. There were other offerings given. And so it'd be pretty easy and not a far stretch for us to say, no, there were 5,400 items. It's just you don't have the full list there. Okay, I get it. It's like when I go on a camping trip, I make a list of things I'm going to take, and it looks like it's 500 items, but it's actually 5,000 items. Okay, <laughs> see the difference? That's the difference. That's what's going on here. Just put that to rest now, okay? All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Key phrase, from Babylon to Jerusalem. I want to pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And uh, it, is a, um, it is an awesome privilege and responsibility to stand in this pulpit in front of your people in this place at this time and uh, preach your word. And so, uh, Father, I ask for a blessing over your word, a blessing over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. Pray, God, that you would um, cause me to preach um, what your people need. And most of all, Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified and that you would lead um, some uh, to a place of salvation this morning um, during our time together. Uh, Father, I trust you to do just exactly that. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> so as we uh, begin this study, book of Ezra. What I want to do this morning first is just make a couple of observations about the book as a whole, kind of get us into the book a little bit. If you've been with us for, um, for a while, you know we, we just pick a book and we preach verse by verse until we get done with it. Beautiful thing about that is you don't get pastors standing on the stage preaching their favorite topic all the time. Uh, also means that when you come up with a troublesome text and a problematic text that you would never preach, guess what? By God's sovereign grace, you get to preach it, and, uh, and then we all get to hear it. And so um, we've just trusted that God kind of assembled his, his book this way, and we think it's good for God's people to be fed this way too, that it puts a good portion of meat on your plate to understand what God is saying. So also it, it protects us from taking things out of context. We love ripping scriptures out of context. I'm going to touch on one later. Um, you might note Jeremiah 29.11. Who knows that? Raise just a show of hands. Jeremiah 29. Great passage, right? I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not plans to harm you. My summary. Okay. Great passage. It's, I mean, Christian t-shirts. Oh, I mean, you get, when it comes to Christian capitalism, you got entire t-shirt and hat businesses and coffee cup businesses and bracelets and probably underwear for all I know built out of that passage. Um, we'll get back to that later. This is the reason that we preach through books, though. Observation about the book itself, Ezra, that we're going to be in this morning and then for the next couple of months. Uh, first of all, I want to point this out. It's really important for us to note that, that the man, Ezra himself, he doesn't even actually show up until chapter 7. So we got six chapters to study through where Ezra's not even there. Okay? He's just commonly known as the author of this book. And uh, that he chose to place himself in towards the end of the book rather than at the beginning of the book. 
Maybe there's some reasons for that. We'll probably deal with that as we walk our way through it. But he doesn't show up until chapter 7. And when Ezra does show up, here's what we learn about him. And I think it's important for us to know this about Ezra from the get-go. Ezra is a priest, and he's also a, uh, a, a scribe. And most of us are like, okay, thanks. Priest and scribe means nothing to me in this day and age. Well, the priest is very much like a pastor, and a scribe is very much like a biblical scholar. So when you, when you think about Ezra, you're thinking of a very pastoral man, and you're thinking of a man who knows his Bible. And in fact, in chapter 7, when Ezra comes onto the scene, we actually have this description of him. It says that Ezra had set his heart, devoted his life, to study the law of God. And not only to study the law of God, but to do it and to teach his statutes and and rules to all of Israel. So at the end of the day, what you have in Ezra is a man who is very pastoral, a man who knows God's word, okay? And and here's the thing. We should not see this as though, okay, well, that's really good for somebody like Pastor Joe or Pastor Donnie or the other Pastor Joe. This should be something that I think God expects of all of us, that we should be devoted to God's word, not only devoted to studying it, but also devoted to knowing it, but also devoted to practicing it, living it, and... You may not be the guy who gets up on a stage on a Sunday morning uh, or, or a woman who stands in front of a group, um, but every one of us in this room has a responsibility for teaching God's word to others, whether that be your friends and your family or your children or, 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 or whoever that may be. So I just, I hope that those three things, the study of God's word, the learning of God's word, the practicing of God's word, the teaching of God's word would kind of get deep down inside of us as a church family and that would begin to Uh, be who we are. Second thing I want to make a note on in terms of the book is, uh, since we talked about the author for a few moments, let's talk about the book itself and the way that it's kind of constructed, okay? Um, One of the things I would encourage all of us to do during this study is maybe each week try to find a time to read through the entire book. It's not long. It's only 10 chapters. Some of you are like, only 10? I ain't read 10 chapters of the Bible ever. Now's a good time to start, (laughs) Like, then you can stop saying, I've never read 10 chapters of the Bible. Now you can start saying, I read 10 chapters of the Bible every week for however many months it takes us to get through this. And at this rate, for as long as I'm carrying on in the introduction, it's going to take us three years. So, overview of the book. If you would go read that, you'll catch this overview. Chapters one, there's, there's 10 chapters. Everybody say 10. Yeah. Kind of like a 10th. See how we could have done the giving series longer? I'm <laughs> like, I'm going to keep coming back to it. It's just good. Anyways. First six chapters. Everybody say six. Yes, it's the number of men. Stop it already. It doesn't matter, okay? First six chapters are all about um, Israel's history from the point of their release from captivity to the end of rebuilding the altar in the temple. Okay, that's the first six chapters. We want to take a guess at how many years of history are covered in six chapters. Anybody here close to 20 years old? Who's close to 20? Michael. Dave, you're, you are close to 23 times over. This is good. That's 60, brother, just helping with the, uh, the mathematics. <laughs> 20. Those first six chapters cover roughly 20 years of history, okay? So lots of history happening there from the time that they're released at the beginning that we just read to the time that the altar and the temple are built. And then, and then, everybody say, and then, and then, in between chapter 6 and 7, there's roughly, if I've got it right in my notes, roughly 
60 years of time elapsing. Okay? So you've got about a 60-year time span between 6 and 7 when then Ezra arrives on the scene in Jerusalem in chapter 7. Okay? So it's almost like what Ezra did is he gave us this big, long, uh, almost 80-year introduction. Anybody want an 80-year introduction to a sermon? You just got one, okay? It's almost like he did an 80-year introduction before he even inserted himself into it. And the reason he comes on the scene, his whole purpose here when he arrives in Jerusalem is to call God's people to repentance so that they might be restored or rebuilt, just like the altar in the temple had. So you got this image in your mind of a physical altar and temple being rebuilt from ruins, and then you've got all these people who are walking in their lives in really horrible ways. And Ezra basically walks in and he's like, yo, over the last 80 years, that temple over there got built, rebuilt from the rubble that it was in. You remember what that looked like when that building was in rubble. Now look at your lives. Your lives are in shambles. And they need to be rebuilt. And for the rest of the book, that's what Ezra does. This talks about what needs to be restored, what needs to be rebuilt, what pieces need to be picked back up and put back together in these people's lives. And he covers some heavy topics. I'll tell you now, the, 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 the last note of this book is, hey, some of you divorced your prior wives that you should have stayed married to, and you married these foreign wives. You know what you need to do to repent now? Go divorce the foreign wife you're with and get remarried back with the, the wife you were with previously. It's crazy. It's crazy heavy stuff. So, that's Ezra. The picture that we get in this book is God at the end of the day, right? It's all theological. Everything should be about the study of God. What we see about God in this book is that he is consistently, faithfully restoring or rebuilding his family right here on earth. A worshiping family. And he, and he does this beginning again with the altar and the temple. Then he continues right down to the hearts of the community of believers. And he does all of this work through the work of one man. Somebody go, hmm. Yeah. The work of one man named Ezra who I find in many ways points us back to another one man. What's his name? Jesus. That always points back to Jesus. And in Ezra, we see that God does this work through one man to restore a community of worship in a place of worship at a specific time in history when the worship of God was at an all-time low. Now, somebody tell me that doesn't seem to fit where we're living right now. I mean, could I be frank with us for a minute? That the, the American church, I think, is guilty in this season of trading the worship of our Savior for the worship of our nation. Don't get me wrong, I'm thankful and I'm grateful to be an American. But we should never forget the kingdom that we belong to, if we're believers, that's our kingdom. And, and, and I think that worship is at an all-time low in America because of that. It's called synch syncretism, I think is the right word. It's when God's people take their worship and blend it together with something that's foreign. And me being um, part of a nation 
is foreign to the fact that I am part of one kingdom only. And that's the kingdom of Jesus. So I, I would hope and pray that throughout this, God would stir us up like he stirs up people, right, all over in this text. And then we would set our worship dysfunction straight. He would restore, he would rebuild broken areas of our life. So that's by way of introduction. Let's look at what's actually happening in the text that we have in front of us. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we just read it. Storyline of these 11 verses, fairly simple. Somebody say it's fairly simple. So you just gave me a chance to take a drink. Thank you. <coughs> what happens is two things in these verses, basically, two broad overview things. First thing that happens is the king basically makes a proclamation about Israel's release from, Ezra, uh, from, from exile, right? Now, let me just say this, too. I, I titled this uh, sermon, The Word of a King. Uh, I, unless I you know, forget to say this later, and it's okay saying it a couple times anyways, I don't want us to get too hung up on the fact that some pagan king made a proclamation because the reality of what matters to us in our lives is not the proclamation of some pagan king. What doesn't really matter in your life and my life is some proclamation from our president. What matters is the proclamation of the king behind that king. Or you could say, not the king behind that king, but the king over that king. You know who that king is? His name is Jesus. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's the one who's going to return, and he's the one that everybody will bow to one day. There's no earthly king that's going to put you and I's life back together. I mean, we can, we can work hard in our communities to see that our, our communities and our social systems head the right direction. Absolutely. And we can use the freedoms that we have to try to do the right things and to, to try to influence culture to move the right way. Absolutely do so. At the end of the day, let me say this. Let's trust only in the word of one king. The one king who's by his word you are set free. Okay? So I just want to make sure that I lay that card on the table now. So I don't forget to say it later. But that's the first thing we see happening. That's verses 1 through 4. King makes a proclamation about Israel's release from exile. Second thing we see here is Israel responds to that proclamation. Now here's the thing. There's always, there's always a response to something that's said. Even if you don't say something or do something, that in itself is a response to what was said. For instance, my wife says, the trash needs to be taken out. And I jump off the couch and I grab the trash and I take it out. That's a response, agreed? If I also go, hmm, I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear that. Now, I might get hit over the head with a frying pan by my wife. Or shot because she is a concealed carry lady. So I really shouldn't mess with her, okay? If I just didn't buy rounds, we'd be okay. Probably. Anyways, I, it's still a response. The response that's happening there is I am choosing not to do what I know she's wanting me to do. So when a proclamation is made, there is always a response. And Israel responds to the proclamation of the king in this passage. Dig a little deeper with me for a few minutes. Verses 1 through 4. Got this proclamation that's made, right? This word from King Cyrus... What it does is it sets the restoration of God's altar, God's temple, God's family into motion. But again, like I said earlier, that word from King Cyrus, this pagan king, um, comes from another king, the king that we worship. And here's the funny thing too, the cool thing, not the funny thing, but it's the cool thing. 
is that this proclamation by King Cyrus was predicted nearly 70 years earlier by a prophet named Jeremiah. We're going to look at Jeremiah in just a moment, um, but I think it's, again, important for us to recognize and remember that an earthly king, King Cyrus, this king who did not serve the God of Israel, although it may appear as though he did because he was serving the purposes of the God of Israel. He did not serve the God of Israel. The thing that he was doing with Israel, he did with many other worshiping nations as well. Set them free, allowed them to restore their religious heritage, allowed them to put all their religious items back in their temples, and so on. So he did this because he knew as a leader that if he did that, he would gain their support. So what he was doing was self-centered, not God-centered. So just get that straight right off the bat. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. He's serving God's purposes, and he don't even know it. Okay? It's important to note, too, that, that when he did this, even though he did not serve the God of Israel, his, this proclamation, he said, happened because God had stirred his heart up. Uh, you might even notice, too, in those first four vor- verses that he does recognize that the God of Israel has actually provided all of his earthly possessions and his earthly power. I think that's fascinating, too, that he would actually recognize the sovereign work of God in his provision. He also believes that God has instructed him. God gave me these instructions to send the exiles home, to rebuild, to restore God's house of worship. And this is why he then also gives those instructions for the financial assistance um, for those returning exiles from everybody that's living around them. If there's something to remember from these first four verses, I think the principle is this. God can and will and often does use any means necessary to accomplish his plan of redemption. I want to say it one more time because I want it to sink in a little bit. Because I don't know where God's at work in your life at. I don't know where you're at in your journey with Jesus or your journey with God or what's happening in your family or your job or what's going on in your sin struggle. I don't know what's happening in your life, but I want you to know that what we can get from these first four verses is that God can and will and often does use any means necessary to accomplish his plan of redemption. I mean, this whole picture of exile, being exiled for 70 years for Israel, this is the picture of bondage. You're no longer free to live as God has designed you to live. And Israel is living in bondage quite simply because of their sin. We're going to get into that more later. But that's the story of the gospel. Before you and I actually trust in Jesus, we are living in bondage. Satan's having his way, sin's having his way, and death is coming for us, and the place we're heading after death is not a very fun place, even if ACDC did have a really cool song about it. Okay. And what Jesus does is he walks onto the scene, and and he goes, hey, there's freedom, and my father is willing to do anything, and he can do anything, and he will do anything to accomplish his plan of redemption in your life. That's the proclamation of a king. The question is, what's your response? 
the way you're going to know what your response actually is, if your actions meet your words, is by the fruit of your life. And you see that in this story. Look at verses 5 through 11 with me for a few minutes. Keep thinking about what's happening in the text. Keep trying to make some of the connections from what's happening way back then to now for us. Verses 5 through 11, what do you see? Israel responds, right? We've been talking about that a little bit. Israel responds to the word of the king. Now, if you think about being in their shoes for me, it might be hard for us to think about it because we don't live there and it was a long time ago. If I think about where Israel was at in that moment, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be an Israelite and to hear the word of King Cyrus and in those moments try to comprehend that after nearly 70 years of captivity in a foreign land that I'm now being released to go back to my home and rebuild my place of worship. It's hard for me to comprehend because I've never experienced it. But think about it for a minute. The journey's not going to be very easy, right? They're traveling on foot, and it's a long ways away. And, and, and on top of that, think about this generation of Israelites for a minute. 70 years? You know how long a generation would last then? Typically 40. 40 was a, was a good generation. You had some guys that lived to be thousands of years old, yes. By this time in the history of Israel, though, you're lucky if you see 40. It's hard living. The food ain't great. <laughs> Places aren't very clean. And sickness takes you out pretty fast. Uh, again, there are people who live longer, for sure. But the idea is that common generation is going to last 40, maybe 50 years. So this generation of Israelites, after 70 years in captivity, they, they're a completely new generation. People that had actually lived in Jerusalem and seen the temple and worshipped in it, they're dead. This is like children and grandchildren growing up. And all that's been happening is they've been hearing their parents and their grandparents talk about this beautiful church building we used to have. And they're nostalgic and they're thinking about the good old days, right? <coughs> and they're talking about all the beautiful worship and the prayers that happen in that place. This is the generation that's being set free to go back and to rebuild something that they've never actually experienced. So you think about that. That's the place I think these people are in. I think for them, the journey ahead is going to be hard. They don't know where they're heading. The journey ahead for them doesn't have a real clear picture on how to get there. It's hard to tell what even is the destination. How do I know when we've reached this place God's calling us to, right? How will I know when it's done? It's not unlike any of our spiritual journeys, is it? I mean, I think all of us can get to this place where we're like, man, I just wish I could quit looking at porn, or I wish I could quit drinking, or I wish I could quit yelling at my wife, or wish well, my wife would quit yelling at me, or, you know, whatever that sin struggle is for you, I think we all kind of have some destinations there that we'd like to get to, yeah. But here's the funny thing. The funny thing is, once you reach that destination, there's going to be another one. And once you reach that destination, there's going to be another one. Because here, at some point, you're going to be like, Thank God I don't look at porn anymore or drink anymore or yell at my wife anymore. Look at me. Well, now it's pride, right? That's what I mean. This, this, this idea of us like moving to a destination in terms of like 
growing in God and worshiping him, it's all about repentance. And the problem for us, I say this all the time, I love this statement. It's not, it's not original with me. I can't even quote who it is, just going to simply say it didn't start with me, so that it's cited correctly. I don't take credit for something that don't belong to me. The problem for us is we love destination points, but here's the real problem. Repentance has no destination. There's no point when you can say, I'm done, until you're standing in front of the king who said, it is done, because I finished it for you. And when you're standing in front of him in heaven, at that point it's done, and it has nothing to do with you anymore. Like, it's, it's just a weird, wonky faith journey. That's what I mean by this whole thing. And I think we can be encouraged in this picture because God's been doing the same thing with his people from day one. You and I are not alone. We still have the same God who loves to restore and loves to rebuild. Not brick and mortar. I'm pretty sure God doesn't give two cents about the brick and mortar of the buildings. It's just that we're such visual people, we need to see that, and I think it helps us move forward in terms of building the invisible pieces of our lives. That's where God wants to do work, is in the invisible places of your life. The question is, is when you hear that word proclaimed over you, will you be willing to let him do that work, and will you respond in an affirmative way and start moving? Right? That's the question. Because that's what happens here, man. They get up. Starts with the leaders first. You'll see that in the text, right? <clears throat> all the leaders of the households, all the Levites, all the leaders, they get up and they do what leaders are supposed to do for once in Israel's history. The leaders do what they're supposed to do. And if you read half the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll find that the prophets are always yelling at the leaders. Hey, you're supposed to be a leader. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? And because of you, the entire family's going to get cursed. Live with that sucker. Right? And then the backup piece of that is Jesus comes, and then he, they always come back at the very end and go, <clears throat> by the way, um, by the way, God is going to come through and redeem you. There's always a redeeming point in the prophet's messages. And I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, it's the leaders in God's family that are screwing things up. And, and the people in God's family are following their leaders where they go. It's like, okay, here we go. Um, in this case, they get it right. The leaders get up first, and they get moving, and they're, and they're heading right in the right direction. And uh, people are following them. People are giving contributions from their wealth, back to the whole giving theme. <laughs> contributions from their wealth to support them in their journey, right? And then, like I said earlier, King Cyrus even gives back all the stuff that that other pagan king thought he had taken for his own, and God's up there getting a great laugh. God's like, I had this plan from day one, and you never saw it coming. What do I get from this? I think what we need to see here is that when the king speaks, his people respond obediently. When the king speaks, his people respond. Have you heard, have you heard the king speak to you? I mean, in this moment, as God's word is being preached, King Jesus is speaking to you about something. The question is, how will you respond? Will you be one who gets up and follows? Will you be one who gets up and pursues Jesus? Will you be one who gets up and trusts trust that God marked this moment for you to begin your journey of being restored and being rebuilt? Or will you ignore that? What will you do? That's kind of what we get from the text. Now, I also want to take a few minutes and talk about Jeremiah because Jeremiah is really key to this, okay? 
Um, and that's the question that we'd want to ask interpretively. Somebody say, interpretively. You guys are so good to me. <laughs> what does Jeremiah have to do with this text? To me, this is fascinating stuff. It's not so much fascinating just because it's like head knowledge stuff, but it's fascinating because it actually points to why we're reading this and why this text is so important. It's such a great connection. When you read verse 1, you read in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Bingo. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So the question I ask is, well, what is this word? What is this word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah? And why is that so important to what we're reading here? Why did Ezra place this in there, right? <coughs> Let's talk about Jeremiah for a minute. <coughs> Anybody know who Jeremiah was? Prophet, priest, or king? Which one? Prophet, very good. Okay, you're following along. Jeremiah was a prophet. God had raised Jeremiah up as a prophet to do a couple of things. He raised Jeremiah up to confront Israel for her sins, to, to warn Israel of impending judgment, you might say, or discipline, you might say. And then finally, um, to promise Israel that God would redeem her after the discipline had produced its cleansing and corrective design. So if you're a parent here, you know what this is like. Kid does something stupid, you told him a thousand times, stop doing that. If you don't stop doing that, this is what's going to happen. And you know what? I've warned you enough times. Now this is what's happening. And by the way, this is what's going to happen. You're going to sit in the corner or sit in silence or whatever it may be until such time as it uh, seems as though the discipline has done the work that it needs to do in your life. And when it appears as though you're ready to change, at that point, I'm going to swoop back in as the loving parent that I am. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to let you know that I, I love you. And we're going to go sit down and watch TV together right? Probably not Baby Shark, hopefully. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> that's the picture of the prophet Jeremiah. And really, that's the picture of most all the prophets in the scriptures. The purpose of God sending a prophet to speak to you is always going to have one of those three, if not all three of those elements. God always raised up prophets to confront people for their sin, to warn them of the discipline that's on its way, and to remind them of God's promise of redemption. And the end goal for God <coughs> is to correct you. <coughs> it's to refine you. It's to instruct you, right? It's to instruct you and to encourage you as you fight against the effects of Satan, sin, and death. What do I always say? Satan comes to tempt, right? Well, Satan comes to condemn, sin comes to tempt, and death comes to taunt. Condemn, tempt, taunt. Satan, you suck, you're so stupid, right? That's Satan's words. Shaming you, guilting you, trying to get you to live under condemnation. Sin tempts you. Doesn't that look juicy? <laughs> Doesn't that look fun? That's going to feel good. You really miss this, don't you? That's sin. And then taunt. <laughs> I'm coming for you, and you can't beat me. Your days are numbered. That's Satan, sin, and death. Those are our three mortal enemies. And at the end of the day, we fight against them. 
We fight against them as we trust in a Savior who fought them and was victorious over them. And that then enables us to fight, right? So a prophet would come into your life to warn you, to rebuke you, to instruct you, to encourage you, to keep moving in that fight. Don't tap out, right? Don't tap out in the midst of the ring. Keep getting up, keep slugging away. By the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit who lives inside of you, walk like a Christian. Walk like a blood-bought believer. This is what a prophet would do. <coughs> and if you don't, this is what's coming for you. But be encouraged. God will help you. So that's the picture um, that we have of Jeremiah. And this is exactly what this reference in Ezra 1, 1 points to. As soon as the people of Israel would have heard Ezra saying this to them, the moment he steps on the scene in chapter 7, he goes, hey, yo, people, come here, come here. Uh, like 80 years ago, y'all got set free. And you got set free to fulfill the word of Jeremiah. Everybody in that room would have been like, oh, shoot, I heard about Jeremiah. That guy was one bad dude. I remember him. He cried a lot. He said some really harsh things. And that was like almost 70 years ago, back then. <coughs> now it's been 150 years, roughly, right? They would have known right away, as soon as the name Jeremiah was uttered, they would have remembered his prophecy nearly 70 years before they were set free, okay? In summary, if you were to read the book of Jeremiah, it's a long book, it's a heavy book, it's a great book to read. If you were to read it, though, you would see that Jeremiah confronts Israel's sin of adulterous idolatry. That's the simple way to put it. Not just adultery on their wives, but adulterous idolatry against God. They kept trading the worship of God for the worship of other gods. Now, back then, you had all these other gods all these other nations had set up. The nation of Israel was to worship God alone. And what they were guilty of was something that I would call, and most theologians call, syncretism. It's blending the practice of worshiping God with worshiping other kind of good things or good beings if they existed. These are summaries of ways to put it together. Jeremiah steps on the scene, he goes, no. He confronts them for that sin. That was under the reign of King Josiah, and then his two sons, two weird names, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Jeremiah confronted Israel and her kings, and he warned them of upcoming judgment time and time and time again. He warned them, discipline is coming. Babylonian captivity is coming. But at the end of 70 years, God will step in and he'll redeem you. In fact, Jeremiah promises that again in Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. This is the Jeremiah 29, 11 connection. The promise is that God is going to release Israel after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Can you just like stop for a minute and think about 70 years? We have a few of you in here that are close to one or maybe at least one Joe Nelson who's over 70 and still running around like a spry young chicken with some really fine hair on his head. <laughs> Has chickens too, so there's no intended meaning in the pun other than that's what came out of my mouth and Joe's probably going to yell at me later so 
Hey, forgetfulness helps sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> I forgot how old I am. I don't know. <laughs> I do this all the time, too. <coughs> 70 years. Can you imagine being in timeout for 70 years? Imagine sitting in the corner for 20 years, 70 years. I mean, 70 years. You may be familiar with the passage in Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Man, it sounds like a great promise, doesn't it? Like, I, as a Christian, I want that passage. I don't want the rest of Jeremiah. And you know, that's the problem of modern Christianity. We don't want the rest of Jeremiah. Because we think somehow we deserve Jeremiah 29, 11. We deserve that. Why? Be I don't know why we think we deserve that. And the reality is we're no different than the people in Jeremiah's day. We're no different. We need to read the rest of Jeremiah before we even think about reading Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. To that famous passage, that's the, that's the promise in Jeremiah's book. <coughs> after the confrontation, after the warning of judgment, that's the promise of redemption. And we love it, and it's good to love it. But can you, let me ask, can you really, from a heartfelt way, actually love that promise if you don't do some work in the confrontation and the, and the discipline side? Like, it, it, it's the whole easy-peasy, feel-good faith of American Christianity, especially, where we just, man, we love the good things, the big smiley preachers, right? Um, we, we love that. It's not really good news that our hearts are going to latch onto if you don't deal with the bad news, too. You have an incomplete message. I got to get off the rant and move on because I'm out of time. This famous passage, this is the promise that God gives to his people after confronting them, after warning them. And this happens literally, literally right before the judgment begins. Okay? Everything that Jeremiah has warned them of begins the moment he stops speaking that promise. And what happens is absolutely horrifying. I mean, don't just read what comes before it. Read what comes after that promise in, in, the, in the books of Chronicles where you see this. It's nuts, or Kings. You go to Kings. In fact, the reference is Kings 25.7. This is what happens the moment Jeremiah shuts his mouth and stops preaching. The moment he gets done, King Zedekiah gets taken by the Babylonian emperor, right? Um... And he watches his sons get executed right in front of him. Down on his knees, being held captive. They pull his two sons up in front of him. They cut their throats in front of him. Right after they get done doing that, you know what they do? They gouge his eyes out with hot pokers. The last thing that this man saw was his two sons dying because of his sin. Because of his unrepented sin. Because he loved his sin so much. It's the last thing he saw. That's what happened right before that 70 years started. And the nation of Israel gets decimated. In summary, Jeremiah confronts Israel for a sin, calls her to repent. Israel refuses to repent. Jeremiah warns them, hey man, judgment's coming. Still refuse to repent. Reminds them that even though they've blown their chance to repent, God's going to keep his promise. He's a promise-keeping, redeeming God. And the only way that I think we latch onto the fact that God is a promise-keeping, redeeming God is if we do some work in the ugly stuff of our lives. Reminds them that their punishment's only going to last 70 years. This is why Ezra 1.1 1, 1 
mentions Jeremiah's name. And I think the thing we're supposed to get from this is that God is a promise-keeping, redeeming God. And what God does is he uses consequences to correct us. He uses those consequences to correct us and to help us to trust in him for our cleansing and our redemption. So why does this matter? That's the question we should always ask. Why does this matter? Why should it matter? What should we do? I don't know what you're facing in the season of your life right now. I don't know what your ongoing battle with sin looks like. I don't know what God's been saying to you in your private moments of prayer or desperation. All right? I, don't, I don't know what God's calling you to do in this season. I do know this. I do know that if the text we've just studied teaches us that the Spirit of God stirs up the hearts of both unbelievers, like King Cyrus, as well as believers, just like the nation of Israel, then I know what the Spirit of God wants to do is to speak to you and to speak to me today through this study. I know that what God wants to do is speak to you and I about our issues. Could be an issue with control or powerlessness, or helplessness, or acceptance, right? You just feel totally out of control at home with your spouse or with your kids. You feel powerless, unable to do anything about the circumstances of this life that you either, A, found yourself in, (coughs) or that you see in the world around you. You struggle with this issue of acceptance where you just wish people would love you. Maybe it's an acceptance issue with your husband or your wife or a friend crowd. Whatever that issue is, at some point, that's the core. And out of that kind of an issue, power, control, helplessness, acceptance, comes the way that you believe and live. So then what happens is we wander off. When those things kind of crank up inside of us, it creates a thirst or a hunger of some sort. And all of us are just like these people in the scriptures. We go off searching for some kind of control, some kind of power, some kind of comfort, right? Some kind of acceptance somewhere. And what happens is you and I are already trained to look to the darkest corners of this earth to satisfy those hungers. Whether you're looking at your computer screen late at night or your telephone screen or whether you're turning to the bottle or whether you're turn into some illicit relationship, or whether you, you, maybe for you it's just an addiction to shopping, right? I don't know what it is for you. It could be a number of different things. We wind up turning to places to satisfy those hungers and those thirsts that don't have anything to do with God. It's highly possible that there's many of you sitting in this room today and you are deeply entrenched in some deep, dark, sinful pattern. You've, you've not been taking repentance seriously. But you and I are no different than the people in the scriptures, no matter how good of faces we put on when we walk into our church gatherings. There's always something going on inside of us. And I think I would be an unfaithful preacher if I didn't stand in front of you and say, I have to do this heart work as well, Right? Like, I have to look deep down inside and go, where am I looking for it? I got a letter this week. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Like, my work week kind of stinks too sometimes. I know most pastors aren't supposed to say that because pastors are supposed to be high and holy, right? Your week, anybody here whose work week never stinks? Why is nobody, oh, because nobody's work week never stinks. (sighs) I got a letter this week where I was just like, man, kept me up all night long. 
And, and I'm wrestling with these issues of control, especially acceptance. Acceptance was the issue for me. <coughs> fear. I'll be fear. Trying to figure out, oh, crap, did I do something wrong? You know, those kinds of things. And it would be easy for me to run off and try to placate that with something. I mean, I used to be a heavy drinker. Like, weed was great because I could kind of escape, float a little bit, you know? Pornography helped me to feel like I was accepted by somebody on a screen, even though it's jacked up and stupid to even think that way, but that's what's going on inside of a man's mind, or a woman's, when we turn to those places. There's a lot of places I could turn that are not God. I don't know where you've been in terms of taking repentance seriously. Um, I think there's some of you in this room probably who are in a season of repentance from years of sinful living. I know some of your stories enough to know that. Like, I know you're trying hard. Like, you're like, okay, I don't don't ever want to go back there. I want to keep moving forward. But I also know it's extremely hard. Right? Like, it's just extremely hard. And there are times where things pop up and you're like, man, I just wonder if I should go back to what I was doing before. I'm only like a couple weeks out of this thing. And here I am today. I don't know what to do. So I think there's some of you that are probably still in some of that. I think there may be some of you who are in a season of maybe reaping the consequences of un, un, unrepented sin in your life. You, you've not dealt with it. You're living in some of those consequences. You're wondering if there's any light at the end of the tunnel, right? So what is the king saying to you? Right. Not what am I saying to you, but what is the king saying to you? about your redemption? What's he proclaiming to you? What's he calling you out of? I said that the last two words, last phrase of the text were important. All these did Sheshbazer bring up when the exiles were brought up from where? Babylon to Jerusalem. Babylon is representative of our sinful living. Jerusalem is representative of the place where we find redemption and freedom and salvation. So do you want to stay in Babylon? Many of them did. The entire nation did not go. Many of them said, no, bro, that journey's too hard. Reminds me that the path is wide that many are going to go down. And that path leads to a place like Babylon, a place of captivity and bondage and death. It's called hell. There's this narrow path you can get on. It's hard to walk down. The other one's pretty easy. It's paved. It's like a highway to hell. (laughs) Jesus is good. I think that was the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Read my notes. It's not in there. That's an easy path. Walk it. Have fun. See where it ends. There is this narrow path. And there's a lot of pilgrims that have walked down that path. And it's pretty tough. And the only reason I stand in front of you in tears is because I know how tough it is. I want to take that letter I got and I want to go blow up somebody's car. <laughs> I want to go, I want to go jump into a fight because that's what I know how to do. My Savior hung on a cross. For me when I was rebellious. So I can lovingly burn that letter and forget about it. 
trust that my Savior and what he says over me is more than enough acceptance for me. So the calling for you is, do you want to live in Babylon or do you want to live in Jerusalem? I want to pray there because I think that's a good place to stop. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that you would take um, my very feeble attempts in these moments to explain what you're saying. I pray, God, pray, God that you would, um, and over the next few moments, take what you wanted to say, drill that deep in each of our hearts. Father, I know that passage that says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I know that that landed on the Israelites differently than it lands on us. And yet, Father, I know it's meant to encourage us to look at a cross, a bloody, bloody, bloody cross, a horrific cross. I know that that promise is meant to cause us to look into an empty tomb and be encouraged by your victory over Satan's sin in the grave. I know that that promise is, is meant to cause us to think about how heaven is our ultimate destination. But this earth is very much like Babylon, and yet heaven is that place of complete freedom. No more tears, no more sin, no more trouble, no more brokenness, no more sickness. And then we journey towards that place with our little backpacks on, and sometimes we put things in those backpacks that don't belong there. So I pray, Father, for everyone in this room, whatever point of the journey they're at, God, I pray that you bring some to a place of trust in you. I pray that you bring others to the foot of that bloody cross and help them take out some of those heavy rocks in that backpack that don't belong there. I pray, God, that you would lighten that load and give strength as we look to the work of your son Jesus at that cross who died to set us free. I pray that your spirit would give us faith. Help us to trust and to believe that what you have proclaimed is true, that the word of the king can be trusted. And then help us to live in obedience to that word. God, we love you. We trust you to do this work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.